This is Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. I'm Alan Strickland. Brian Newhouse is with us today. He's known in the world of classical music as an on-air personality, a writer, a producer, a manager of a nationwide classical broadcast service, and is presently employed by the Minnesota Orchestra. He's someone I've known for many years and is a good friend. Brian, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Alan. I've never asked you, how did you discover your love for classical music? Having known you for a few decades, you'd think we would have covered this ground already. But were you a rocker in high school? I mean, I associate you now with classical music. But as a kid, did you ever crank up the radio and thrash around in your room? No. Really? I mean, I listened to pop music, sure. You know, growing up in the cornfields of northern Illinois in the 70s, we listened to WLS out of Chicago, AM station. It wasn't like classical music is better than pop music. I was never elitist about it at all. It was just like, I love this. This speaks to me. And pop music kind of was like popcorn. And it was like, you know, that's not a meal. It was good. I kind of liked it, but it wasn't my thing. So when did you know that music would be a passion that you'd pursue? I mean, you mentioned cornfields of northern Illinois. I'm guessing there weren't a lot of friends that you had that were like, hey, let's run off and do classical music together. Well, surprisingly, the the nice thing about it was that in my high school, which was a country high school, there were a group of about a dozen of us who were the band geeks and the choir geeks. And so we all kind of did classical music since they were my tribe. I was in their tribe. So it wasn't large, but I was not alone. I wasn't like the lone kid out who felt weird that I liked this music. You weren't secretly listening to Schubert in the barn. No, no. I mean, I was... (laughs) But let me go back to your original question. When, was, when did I find out that I, I liked this stuff? So I started singing in my church choir. And one of my earliest memories is being a little kid, probably four years old. And I can still remember the robes that they put us in. Terribly cute. I wish I had a photo, but I don't. They were these white kind of knee-length robes, and you wore a big red bow that came down the front. And we were called the Cherub Choir. Of course you were. And and at four years old, I had a desperate crush on the teenage girl who was our conductor. And I, and I wanted her to marry me. I remember that. That was very important. Piano lessons started when I was about seven. We had a very small kind of spinet piano in our farmhouse. And nobody really played it, but I, I gravitated towards it and started plunking out this note and that note. And lessons followed. And it was pretty quickly after then that I realized what... What this instrument was allowing me to do was to feel parts of my life, of my heart, even as a little kid, that nothing else was. So when you ask how old was I, I was, it was seven, eight, nine years old. And this is just two-finger stuff, three-finger stuff. So there was a bit of an awakening at the spinet on the farmhouse. Very much, very early on. And all the while I was singing in church choir and then in a high school the choir became the, the thing. I was a really rotten cornet player, just <laughs> flailed and failed at it. And, uh, but it was part of what I did to find this community around me of other kids who would like this stuff as much as I did. I became a pretty good piano player, not a great one at all. I thought I was great, but I was a big fish in a small farm pond. Gotcha. <laughs> um, <laughs> this gets to your questions, like why, why and how did all this kind of take? As I realized the, the better I got, especially at playing piano and then at singing, this was a way to woo women to, uh, 
to lift a line from uh, Robin Williams' Dead Poet Society, you know, why why does a poet write or whatever? It's like it is a, primarily it's a way to woo women, and and I found it pretty effective actually. <laughs> and I was actually only after one woman at that time, first girlfriend, and that's how it all started. So in some ways, it was about community and romance. That's well put. That's really well put. By far, the strongest thing was community. And that's what I remember with such fondness now is, you know, all these kids around me. Community from a very early age. Yeah, yeah. Then that girls paid attention to you when you can sit down and play, you know, Grieg and Schubert and Rachmaninoff. Oh my gosh, Rachmaninoff. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> that's when you're all over the keyboard. But when you're, you're otherwise a fairly shy, introverted person, as I was, you know, youngest of four kids, a uh, family of, of some big personalities, I was one of the quieter ones in that mix. And this allowed me to find my place within the family, within the community. So, yeah. So it was very defining for you as well. Yeah, yeah. Fast forward 50 years in leaving a job as the lead, uh, as the head of you know, America's largest classical music producer suddenly because of what COVID did to the company's finances, leaving it suddenly within a space of days. I didn't realize until I walked out the door how much identity. It was all identity. How long had you worked there? I'd had two stints, but they basically totaled around 35 years. Yeah, That's a chunk of life. Yeah, and it had become my identity and a joyful one. I didn't realize how much identity it was until the day after I left. Well, a moment ago we talked about music was your community and at some level an identity. And then you walked out that door and the thing you've done for roughly 35 years that defines you is gone. Who are you in that moment? Utterly lost, beginning a slide into depression, spending hours each day just with my walking shoes on, walking around the neighborhood I lived on, hours and hours and hours, clueless about who I was, what I was going to do, what's my role. Every day I woke up and like just figuring out you know, day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade, I knew what my role was. And it was to solve today's problems, but also to look ahead a year, look ahead five years to the next, leading that team at uh, Classical Minnesota Public Radio. That was a struggle. That was a real struggle for, that went on for about four or five months. And then, surprise, out of the blue came a phone call from the Minnesota Orchestra asking if I'd like to join them on staff. Uh, I'd been their broadcaster better part of 20, 25 years or something. Loved it. Just loved it. And they asked if I'd join them on staff and help them raise money. And I didn't see that phone call coming at all. And the more I opened that conversation up with them, it seemed to make mutual sense. And so that's what I've been doing since then. I have nothing on my resume that I can point to as a development and fundraiser title on it. But the passion for the music, that's what I lead with how it's changed lives, how it makes a community, how it's thrilled me personally and connecting that passion to what, uh, you know, a fan of the orchestra who may want to write a check, that's my job now. And if I lead with that passion that I've had since I was seven years old, that feels totally organic and, and on point for me. Really a natural transition. I, I'd say so. Yeah, I wouldn't go back to what I was doing before because when you exit something and you grieve hard for it. Like, who am I talking to? Yeah. I've done that. Yeah, exactly. 
the idea of going back to that, it's like, no, no, I, I don't want to do that. So going on to it, it does feel like a surprising, but there was kind of a natural transition to it. Classical music draws a very loyal audience, but there's always someone sounding the alarm. Oh, classical music is doomed, it's dying, and soon it will be gone. Clearly, that's not the case. Uh, but from your perspective, how does classical music, which serves a narrower portion of the population in broadcast and in concert and in all those things, how does it survive? Isn't that a good question? Because I remember back in the 80s, all this research was coming out. Oh, classical music, and in particular, classical music radio will be gone in 15 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here it is, 40 years later. Yeah, if you go back into the archives of old, musty, dusty libraries, you can find critics of the early 1500s saying, the music of today does not speak for us. It's essentially jarring. It's trash. It will soon be done. In the 1680s, people are saying, these new sounds, this, this kind of music will not last. Same thing in the early 1800s, 1900s. The death of classical music has been predicted for centuries, at least 600 years. Now, electronic media has complicated that, but it's also given it a whole lot more opportunity as well. I've never drunk that Kool-Aid about the death of classical music, and specifically why. It's because concerts at Orchestra Hall in downtown Minneapolis or at Disney Hall in L.A., or at chamber music concerts in New York, they're full. And that is the work. It's been the work of generations, is to make sure this music somehow speaks to young people too, and you get people in the door. That passion that struck me for this music, not alone, you know, that's why people buy tickets, and that's why people stream it on uh, Name Your Favorite Service. That's why people write checks in significant, significant amounts to arts organizations to keep this music alive because it somehow fills that need that kind of nothing else does. I was asked to preach a sermon in my church. I didn't even write it in the sermon, but I did say that this music is a kind of secular religion for me. It's not God, <laughs> but there is a spiritual connection to this music that, uh, that is like religion for me, that hits the soul in a way that nothing else does. And everybody, I hope everybody has their version of this, whatever it is. Some people it's baseball, some people it's kids, some people it's politics, whatever it is. But this happened to be my thing. And that's the people I talk to, the people I see filling these halls. It's the same for them as well. This music does something that nothing else does for them. And so that's a long way to answer. It's like, I have no fear about the future of classical music. I never have. And, and just, I just don't buy it. I was fortunate enough to know a theologian who's in his 70s out in the Seattle area. And we were just chatting one day, very informally, and I said, uh, how do you know that God exists? And he said, when I sit down in a concert hall and I listen to opera, hmm. I know that we didn't come up with this on our own. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, you can't argue that. Yeah. You can't push back on that. And uh, he was getting a little on in age, and he asked me to come over to his house and look at his stereo. And um, 
he had blown out some really impressive speakers playing opera really, really loud. People love opera in particular. They love it loud. But you've got, you know, 110 dB in the living room on an aria. I don't get it. So <laughs> There is this line in one of the Harry Potter books, and I'll mangle it, but it goes something like this, is that, you know, here's all the wizards of, of Hogwarts. And one of them says, ah, music. We have nothing in all of our wizardry to compare to music. All of our tools are trying to get to what music can do. But that's the essence of it, and I, I believe that. And music is whatever kind of music it is for you. And, I, and again, I want to repeat, classical music is no better than any other kind, but this was the kind that really spoke to me, still speaks. In addition to being a musician, you're also an athlete. You rode your bicycle from coast to coast, and then you wrote a book about it. That's correct. You actually went cross-country twice, if I recall. Coast to coast, just once, and then from pretty much the length of the Mississippi, just once as well. Your book is still available. It's still in print 20 years later, so congratulations on that. Yeah, much to my surprise, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so your drive for music, your drive for writing, and the arts in general, where does that creative process originate in you? Where does that come from? It comes from joy. What gives you joy? What gives you meaning? And for me, outside of my family, it's been two things. And that is writing and singing. And what gives you joy, you just go towards. It feeds you. It's true. And I think any artist would, I would hope, would say that. It's what gives you life. And, and you want more life. And so you keep doing that thing. Have you ever had a crisis of like writer's block? Never, or a, never. Really? No, no, I don't believe in writer's block. I think writer's block is a myth. I think it's it's preposterous. You told me one time that if you just weren't feeling it, you'd still sit down at your computer and just start typing until something showed up on the screen that made sense. Exactly. Just move your move your damn hands. So there's a structure and a belief that it's there. You just have to open the door. Yeah, maybe I should walk that back just a little bit uh, or explain it. I have experienced all the time, consistently over decades of writing, that there is something that the body knows that my brain doesn't know. And when I am feeling, oh, okay, what, I ain't got it today, or well, I, I got nothing to say, just move your hands. Get out of the way and move your hands, whether it's on a keyboard or whether it's with a pen or a pencil. I've been consistently surprised in writing books and writing scripts and writing articles and writing texts for composers to set to music is just move your hands and let something happen. Let one word happen. Let garbage happen. Keep at it. Keep moving your hands. And that has worked for me very consistently. And I'm entirely unsympathetic for people who say they have writer's block because for me, that has always been the answer. And anybody can do it. Anybody can just say, I will move my hands and watch just utter dreck come out of them. And then after a minute, five minutes, an hour, there's a word. Wait, where's that one going? That one felt good. Okay, write another one. And then you're off and running. What about music? Is there ever a time you're like, ah, I just want silence? Oh, yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that yeah. feeds your soul could also drain you? Is um, dosage important, yeah. I guess, is what I'm asking. <laughs> That's a good question. When does a really good meal taste the best? It's when you're hungry. 
It's not when you're full. When does music sound the best is when it's been silent for a while. It's when you really feel a need of it, and that's when it's at its best. So when you're driving your car, you're driving in silence? Do you have a radio on? What do you do? Uh, It's a mix. Like driving here today, it took about a half hour, and I was aware that I was not reaching for for the dial. And I was also aware that I was enjoying the silence and that it was doing something good for me. After a week of six, eight hours of Zoom meetings every day, the silence is really lovely. Whether it's music or whatever, but the silence feeds the soul (laughs) a lot. I know some people keep the TV on in their home so they don't feel alone. Yeah, yeah. I remember people used to write in to our overnight host, Arthur Hain, and send pictures and say, this is me listening to the radio. Mm -hmm. That was a refuge for people who were working overnight as as nurses or as caregivers or insomniacs, whatever. There was a connection there that was local because it came from your broadcast Mm -hmm. facility in your town. Mm -hmm. And now with the advent of streaming and satellite services, Knowing that person, that is fading in favor of convenience. Yeah. So as someone who worked in media and you had to help take a really large organization and turn the corner from broadcast to suddenly streaming and making things available globally, mm-hmm. how do you keep that connection that people want? Yeah. There is something about that convenience of I can make my own playlists and I can make my own radio station. And isn't that cool? And I'm bored with it within a month. Yeah, there's that. I'm hearing the same thing over and over. And flip that coin over, a really good radio host who's living this experience of today with you. There's something about that that will never be old. I think, you know. And it's not replaceable by a machine. No, it's not. Because there we start to touch on this again, this, this, this connection. You know, I'm not alone in this world. I'm up at night. I'm studying for tests. I've got this colicky baby. I'm working the late shift and somebody is here with me. You know, that gets back to kind of the basic part of what, who we are as humans, how we're wired. And I, and I realized that, you know, Spotify has got a really great business model. They're just doing great. They don't need me pontificating about how, you know, a host is going to be always permanent and always valuable. But when I hear a really great, in my case, classical host, time, weather, and here is the most beautiful 10 minutes of music you're going to hear today. And we're going to live this experience together. You know, you and I, Alan, have come back to this word a lot, community, connection, in terms of this music. That's deep in the brainstem of our bodies is that I want to not feel alone. I want to know that I'm safe in the world, that there are others with me traveling through this day together. That's just how the human animal is wired. And this music can fit into that and really, really be a kind of a beautiful part of it. So what advice would you give to someone who hears this podcast and they're just starting to explore music or writing or the arts in general? And they're maybe feeling that tug that you felt, but they're looking around going, well, I don't know what to do with this because it's not the cool thing. Let's be clear, Brian. We were never the cool kids. (laughs) (laughs) 
With very few exceptions, will this get you the girl or the guy? <laughs> Unless that girl or guy is, is also, you know, loves this music. Yeah. For me, I am surprised that I was able to make a career out of, I love to write. I love music. I love classical music. I had no clue about, was there ever going to be a career about any of that? It was just like, I'm, I love this. And, oh, somebody wants me to do a job in that? That's kind of crazy, but let's see what that's about. And it just kept going from there. But my point is, God, life's too short to do something you don't enjoy. So whatever that thing is, do it, love it, revel in it, and don't expect to make money off of it. If the money comes, mazel tov, you know, good on you. And I hope it rains tons of money on you. But don't let that be an expectation. Because that, I don't know, that's a pretty miserable way to live, I think. Get yourself happy first. Yeah, don't shut that impulse to be creative down. Yeah. Don't shut it down. Yeah, yeah. You I won't mean, get rich off of it. No. It, you might. You might. Yeah, but you, you could if, be you, the... if you talk to some of the really rich people, that doesn't work out the way you think it will. Yeah, yeah. And and was it worth it, you know? Just sell it all. Yeah. Know? I mean, for, for me as a, as a writer, almost all my writing was done at 5 a.m., you know, before my kids got up and uh, before I went off to do my job. And that was fine. I didn't complain about it. Uh, it. The house was super quiet. Here we kind of come back to that, the kind of the beauty of silence that we were talking about. Solitude, solace. Oh my gosh. And I would often finish those early morning sessions filled for the day. It feels like anything that happens now, that's all gravy because I've just done the thing I love the most. And then I found that I could get paid for that. And was always kind of pleasantly surprised and still am, frankly. That somebody wants to write me a check for something I've written or done on the radio, it's, it's crazy. So that's the advice, is really do what you love, tuck it into the places you can, and see where it goes. It might explode into the most glorious career you can ever imagine. And if it doesn't, then you've made yourself happy at kind of a soul level. And that's a, that's a life well spent, as far as I'm concerned. Brian, thank you for your time and your insight I know you're a busy man. It's great to see you again. Yeah, thank you, Al. This has been a, been a joy. You've been listening to Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. If you'd like to know more about Brian's cross-country ride, you can find his book at a variety of retailers. It's titled A Crossing, A Cyclist's Journey Home by Brian Newhouse. Your comments and questions are welcome. Send them to audiotractor at outlook.com. I'm Alan Strickland. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.